Well, good morning. <laughs> welcome uh, here in Moorhead, Moorhead campus. Uh, welcome to the Grayson campus and everyone watching online. It's, uh, it's an honor to be in God's house today. It's an honor for me to get to preach God's word, word today. I'm thankful for Pastor Daniel for giving me this, this opportunity. Uh, many of you I know, there are probably a few of you that I haven't got to meet yet, but my name is Matthew Mofield. And God called my family here in 2017. God called me to be the campus minister at the, the BCM, Baptist Campus Ministry. So that's my ministry role. And do we have any BCM or if you're an old person like me, BSU people in the, in the house? Okay. And I know we've got some, some GSP uh, students over here. So I want to talk to you guys for just a second. Is that okay? I'm excited that you're here. You've been at Moorhead State. You've seen the campus. And as you go to college, I want to encourage you to find a campus ministry and get connected with. Um, obviously, I'd love for you to get connected with BCM, but uh, find a campus ministry and get connected. This is going to be vital to you walking with the Lord uh, in college. And so um, come back to Moorhead State. We'd like to have you here. But if you don't come to Moorhead, wherever you go, find a campus ministry that we can have a, a a body of Christians to walk with. You need that. You need the truth of God's word in your life to walk with him. So glad you're here. Wanted to, to give a shout out to you guys. I'm excited that you're here this, this morning and just appreciate again the opportunity. Well, have you ever noticed that there are things in our lives that over time we kind of become blind to and we don't see anymore? It might be obvious to someone else if they were to see it, but for us, We've kind of failed to see it anymore. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. One of my least favorite household chores is dusting. Okay, I don't like to dust. Some of y'all may do that, and I praise, praise the Lord for that, but I really don't like to do that. And so I've got to the point where I don't even notice dust in, in our house. And so, you know, if the time comes to dust or, you know, if, if you know, Sarah and I are talking about what we need to do and, oh, somebody needs to dust, I'm like, what dust? Right? I could, there could be an inch of dust sitting on the table and I wouldn't even notice it because I don't want to see it, right? It just has become, I've become blinded to it. Or maybe you have that junk pile. Maybe that little pile of stuff that kind of sits on your counter in your kitchen and it's maybe tucked away a little bit. Ours is kind of beside the refrigerator. So if you walk in, you, you really wouldn't see it unless you kind of got around enough. But you know, you got a few bills there, a few, you know, a few other things. And we moved to Moorhead we were determined we were not gonna have a junk drawer. And I think we have three junk drawers. <laughs> Everything goes in the junk drawer, right? Um, or maybe, you know, maybe this a check engine light in your, in your vehicle. Now, who's gonna be honest and say the check engine light is on in my vehicle right now? Okay, thank you for your honesty. Um, for some of y'all, you don't even know because it's been on for so long that you've just, you've completely become blind to it. Um, maybe it's the room in your house that when you moved in, it was that really hideous color and you, you knew you were gonna, you said you were gonna paint it, but then you never did paint it and you've lived there for a couple years now and you've just went and bought decorations that match that hideous color now because you've just given up on painting it. We become blind to these things, right? Why does that happen? I mean, do our eyes just stop seeing the dust and the junk and the check engine light? Well, no, our, our eyes still see it, but actually what has happened is, is that 
We've seen these things so much that they no longer have the same effect on us than when we first saw them. And we've learned to tolerate them rather than deal with them. We've kind of become desensitized to them. And so we've, we've minimized the significance of these issues. And over time, I mean, it would take a literal act of the Lord for us to move on some of these things and actually do them, right? I mean, it takes a lot to get me to get the dust rag and start dusting. So what does it take for us to see those things again, to be made aware and, and to actually move on them? Well, it might take someone with fresh eyes to see, to remind you or to point them out to you. It might take your car literally breaking down on the side of the road before you'll ever take it in. I don't know, but something's going to give, right? Something has to happen. But this morning, this isn't just about trivial things in our lives, because I want to submit to you today that there's a much greater blindness that affects all of us at times. And it's a much more serious issue and it's much more difficult to expose and deal with. And that blindness is to the sin that's in our lives. The sin that is at, at work, that's damaging our lives, that has effect on our lives. And sometimes we don't even realize it because we've had it there so long. You see, sin is everywhere. From the beginning of the fall, when we chose, Adam and Eve chose to turn from God, sin entered the picture and has infected all things. I mean, COVID has nothing on sin, right? Sin has the ability to infect and destroy all, all things that God has created. Sometimes sin is blatant. It's really in your face, but then other times it's super subtle and hard to detect. It's just a minute twisting of the truth. Sometimes sin comes at us like a, a freight train and other times it sneaks in like a thief in the night. And so when we harbor certain sins in our lives for so long, we become blinded to their reality. We become blinded to the destructiveness of them, blinded to their danger and blinded to the consequences that they have. This morning I've entitled the message Secret Sins because these are the secret sins. And when I say secret sins, yes, I do mean sins that we feel like are, we're hiding from God or that we're hiding from other people, but also means sin that is in our lives that again, we've become blinded to, that we don't even see anymore. And so this morning, what we're gonna see from God's word is that there are no secret sins with God. God sees all sin. And he has made a way for all sin to be dealt with. And that's the good news we're gonna to get to this morning. Because God, through Christ, has made a way for you and I to walk free from the sin that is so easily entangling us. You see, God only, not only saves us, from our sin and salvation, but he also sanctifies us and he continually is empowering us to do battle with the sin in our lives because even if we are a believer, we still battle with the sin that is in this world that is within our lives. And so this morning, that is what we're gonna look at. And to do that, we're gonna be looking at the story, part of the story of the man named David, who you're probably familiar with. 
So if you have a copy of God's word, we're gonna be in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We're gonna have it up on the screen here for you as well. And as you're turning there, I wanna propose to you three questions that I want, to, I want you to consider as we're going through this. Asking God to reveal to you uh, through his spirit as we're going through, through this today. The first question is this. What sin am I harboring in my life that I'm spiritually blinded to? So just asking God to reveal to you what sin is in my life that, that I need you to show me, God? How do I recognize that sin? That's the second question. How do I recognize it? And then the third question is, what do I do? Once God has revealed sin in my life, what do I do? How do I deal with it? So those are the three questions. As we move to our text, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one, the Bible says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. All right, so we're gonna pause right there, and there's a couple of details that I want us to see, and I wanna give you a little bit of, of context. So David has been called, he has been point, appointed by God to be king of Israel, and David has united Israel, and Israel is, is, is grow, it's thriving, and, and they're conquering other nations around them, and David's life is going very well, and, and the, the country is doing very well, and David has kind of brought everyone back to the worship of the one true God. The ark of God is back in Jerusalem, and God has promised to make David's name great and establish his, his kingdom forever. So things are going really good for David. But what we see here from this very first verse is that there starts to be sin in David's heart that starts to creep in, and it begins this ripple effect that we're gonna, we're gonna walk through. And the first detail I want us to see in verse one, it says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. So that's telling us that this is when the kings of these nations normally go out and lead their armies in battle. And the other detail is there at the end where it says, but David remained in Jerusalem. And the first point I want us to see this morning from the text is that secret sins start out small. Secret sins begin small. So we see that, that while David was supposed to be going out and leading the army, this was part of God's call on his life. Instead of doing that, he stays behind. He, he kind of abdicates that part of, of his responsibility. He delegates to someone else, and then he stays back in Jerusalem. And you think, well, that wouldn't be such a big, a big deal. But it becomes a big deal because what happens is that one choice to compromise puts David in a place where he shouldn't have been, and it exposes him to temptation that he never should have been exposed to. Look with me at verse two. It says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw on the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba? 
the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So because of David's first choice to not go out with with his army and lead them like he should have. He stayed behind. He has this idle time. And because this, this choice, he goes out and he sees from his roof, a woman bathing. And we see that in that moment of temptation, David has a choice, right? He could have, he could have fleed from the, the temptation there, but he doesn't. He has someone find out about the woman. And an interesting detail in here is that when he asks about the woman, someone says, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Clearly telling David, this is a married woman. And the other thing about David is that David is a married man. David has multiple wives, actually. And so David knows that this is not right. This is wrong for him to do, but he chooses to compromise. And so by compromising in that one area, he, be, he be, becomes tempted by the flesh. He gives into that flesh. He sins against God. He sins against Bathsheba. He sins against Uriah, her husband. And again, this ripple effect begins to happen. You see, secret sins, they start out small and subtle. And when we compromise in the small things, we compromise in one area of our lives then that leads to compromising in other areas of our lives. Before you realize it, what you thought you could keep a secret is now plain for everyone to see. What you thought that you could control has now gotten out of control. And what you told yourself was no big deal has now become a big deal that's affected so many people besides you. You see, secret sins, they don't stay secret. They multiply. They're like compound interest. They just keep growing and, and growing. And that's the second point this morning is that secret sins lead to other sins. Sin always does this. It always leads to other sins. In the text, what we're gonna see, or what we see here is that David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He gets her, her pregnant and now he has to make a choice. What is he gonna do? Is he gonna come clean and, and tell what he's done? Or is he going to cover it up and try to save face? Unfortunately, David chooses the latter. David summons Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, from the battlefield. He brings him to his palace. He feeds him. He talks with him. And then he devises this plan that he, he wants to manipulate Uriah so that he will go home and be with his wife and think that he's the father and not David. But this doesn't work because Uriah refuses to go home because he's supposed to be on the battlefield and he knows that his fellow soldiers are on the battlefield and that, that he's not going to go home and do that whenever he should be there. And so David has to take even more drastic measures to keep the, the lie going. It says in verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. That's an important detail. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. 
And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. So because David couldn't get Uriah to go home and, and be with his wife, then he had to take another step. So what does he do? The Bible says he writes a letter to his commander, Joab. And this is basically a death warrant for Uriah. He tells Joab to send Uriah to the fiercest part of the fighting so that he'll, he'll be killed. And verse 14 says that he sent it by Uriah himself. Uriah leaves David's palace. He's carrying his own death warrant and he walks back to his commander and hands it to him. Think about this. Think about what's going on here. What began as David seeing a woman on his rooftop now has led to him murdering one of his best soldiers, destroying a marriage, lying, deceiving, and manipulating many of the people that, he, that trust him. This is David we're talking about. We're not talking about Cain. We're talking about David. Maybe you're thinking, I haven't heard this part of David's story. Well, it's there. It's in the Bible, and it's clear. And it's, and it's there because we, we need to see how sin can have this effect in our lives, that no one is immune to this except for one, and that's Christ. But how does David get to this point? How does he get there? Well, pride has crept into David's life. David has gotten to the point where no one in Israel is able to, to call David on, him, on his sin. He's surrounded himself with yes men so that no one can come against him. He's justified himself, justified the sin to himself, and he's convinced himself that it's okay. And before we lob stones at David, no pun intended, we have to think about how we can get to this point as well, right? How do you and I get to this point in our lives? Because we're not immune from this. When I become self-focused, pride begins to creep into my life. I get to this point when I stop letting anyone from the outside know who I really am. You see, we're really good at portraying the image of who we want people to think we are, but there have to be people in our lives that actually know us and actually can help us pushing us towards godliness. This happens when I surround myself and I only compare myself to other people and, and the sin in their lives. When I start comparing myself to other people, I start to look at others and say, okay, I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as him. And I can justify my sin really easily. But that's not what God says we should do. You see, we should compare ourselves to God and his holiness. The law of God shows us the truth that his perfect standard is that. It's perfection, it's holiness, it's righteousness. And the Bible says we can never attain that type of righteousness. We see that in scripture. I can get to this point when I allow the world to define truth instead of God. Students, listen to me for a second. There's a lot that the world 
is trying to define, redefine truth, we have to stand and find truth in God's word. That's the most significant source of truth. And that goes for all of us. You see, sin doesn't just stop at the small things. It begins to grow. Some of you all have probably done the uh, Dave Ramsey debt snowball. Well, this is the sin snowball. Sin has a snowball effect in our lives and secret sin that begins as an infant. It gets fed and it grows until it's a full-grown destroying monster. And so in order to then continue to build ourselves up, we have to tear someone else down. In order to continue to, to cover up one lie, another lie has to be told. In order to steal more money, another form has to be forged. In order to look at another side, another browser history has to be erased. You see how this compounds over and over as the lies have to continue in order to cover it up. Someone once said, Since sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And the greatest cost of harboring sin in our lives is the destruction it causes to our relationship with God. You see, first and foremost, when we are lost apart from Christ, we don't have a relationship with God. It's because of our sin. Our sin is the barrier. That's why Jesus had to come so that God could pour out his wrath on sin and punish sin and deal with sin so that you and I could be reconciled. But once we are reconciled, once we become a follower of Jesus, sin is still lurking. Sin is still trying to destroy what God wants to do. And the main thing he wants to do is destroy the intimacy we have with God. So that's the third thing here. Secret sins destroy your intimacy with God. In the passage, David, after David sends Uriah back, the battle ensues and Israel is defeated in the battle, essentially. And word comes back to David that They've taken bad casualties. Things didn't go well. And normally, this would really infuriate David and he would have great concern. He would be greatly concerned for the loss of his soldiers and all these things. But one detail was included by Joab to kind of soften the blow. He said, make sure that you tell him that Uriah the Hittite was killed. And when he tells him that Uriah was killed, David basically says, okay, well, that's fine then. No big deal. Because his, his scheme, he thinks, has worked. You see, his heart has become calloused. He's become calloused to the reality of the sin. So he not only celebrates the death of Uriah, we see he seizes the opportunity to take advantage of a grieving widow in Bathsheba and he takes her as his own wife. Look at verse 26. It says, when Uriah, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, David is destroying his relationship with the Lord. It was the Lord that put David where he was. 
David is called a man after God's own heart, but David is destroying his relationship with the Lord because he's blinded to this sin and he's calloused to it. How many of y'all are familiar with calluses? You get calluses on your hands when you work hard. I've been working on a a fence at my house this week and I've actually got some calluses this week on my hands. Um, What are calluses? Well, calluses make the skin hard and numb so that we don't feel the pain anymore. Right? When we get a callus on our hands, it kind of numbs it so we don't feel the pain as much so we can continue to do our work. But secret sins are like calluses on your heart. Calluses on your heart, so they harden our heart's sensitivity to the destructive effects that sin is causing. And that leads to more sin and greater distance between us and God. The callousness is building up, creating greater distance between us and God. And so the question I asked you to think about in the beginning, what sin in your life is creating or what are you harboring? What is creating the calluses on your heart? You see, God already knows them. God, he already knows. And that's, that's the next point this morning is that secret sins are no secret to God at all. And what we're gonna see now is a pivotal point in David's life and in this story. 2 Samuel 12, verse one. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought and he brought it up and he grew, it grew up with him and with his children and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and, the, and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse seven. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you 
shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is a pivotal point in this passage and in David's life. We see that God sends Nathan. David has become calloused. He's become blinded. And so God sends Nathan to point out the sin. And he does it in a very creative way, a very interesting way. Nathan tells him this story, this hypothetical story of a, of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has all these flocks and herds. He has all these lambs. And when a guest comes into town, instead of taking one of his lambs, he takes the poor man's lamb. He only has one lamb. He's raised it like a pet. He loves it. He takes the poor man's lamb and he slaughters it. And immediately David's fury comes up. His anger begins to rise and he already understands and sees that this is wrong and that that should be punished by death. Tim Keller says, David is filled with rationalizations that blind him to the realization of the sin in his own life. So what Nathan does is he takes him into another man's world and lets him evaluate the sin in his life. And by doing that, it takes no time for David to see the sin and call it for what it is. Church, how many times have you and I looked from afar into someone else's life and we have pointed out and seen clearly that that is sin. I can see the sin in your life and we call it for what it is. We see how egregious it is and we call other people out on our sin. But then when we look in the mirror, we're blinded to the reality of the sin in our own lives and how egregious it is to God. You see, David needed a wake-up call. Nathan was providing the wake-up call for David to say, David, look, you are the man. This story is not hypothetical. This story is about you. And so this morning, for some of you, God is saying, this is your wake-up call, that there is no secret sin to God. You're not hiding anything from him. He sees it all. And what you need to know is that this morning, it's time to call sin, sin in your own life. Because it's only when we see sin for what it is, and we call it what it is, and we confess it, and turn it over to the Lord, that he can deal with it. And restoration can happen. And so how do I recognize that sin in my life that I'm become callous to? That was the other question I wanted you to consider. How do I recognize it? And the most obvious answer is that God reveals it to you. And I believe right now God is revealing it to you. God reveals it to you. God reveals it to you when you meet him in his word because his word is truth. It's living and active. So he's revealing it as you're meeting with him. He uses other believers sometimes to point out sin just like he did in David's life. But here's the thing. God doesn't reveal sin to us so that he can condemn us and bring guilt and shame into our lives so that we live in that. That's what Satan wants to do. But this, when God reveals sin to us, it's actually an act of mercy. Because what he is saying, he's saying, come to me, repent of that sin, turn away from it. Because you see, as terrible as our sin is, and it's far worse than we even think, the gospel is far greater than we could ever imagine, and God is more merciful than we could ever think. 
And so when we take our sin and we give it to God and we repent and he says, I've already paid for that sin when I put my son on the cross. You see, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus was the, the sacrifice, right? The propitiation for our sin. He was the one who took it. So did God deal with sin? Yes, he did. He made the choice to pour out his wrath on Jesus instead of you, instead of me. David deserved death. You and I deserve death for our sin. But the Bible is clear, the gospel is clear that we don't have to suffer the condemnation for our sin when we give our life to, to Christ. And so this morning, that is the good news of the gospel. God wants you to feel your sin, but he wants you to feel your sin so you'll turn to him in repentance. And he can restore you, he can forgive you, he can make you new, and you don't have to live in the bondage to that sin anymore. The sin in our life is, it's far worse, like I said, than, than we can imagine. And it affects more than just you. Second Samuel 12, 15, it says, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and he lay down on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. There are consequences to our, to our sin. It affects more than just us. See, David's secret sin had not only caused destruction in his own life, but it left a wake of destruction around him, including his infant child. His now wife Bathsheba had lost her husband that David had murdered. Now she has lost a child. You see, Satan, he's the father of lies and his, his tactic is always the same, but he's lying to us and his lie is that your sin is not hurting anyone else. It's just, it's just you. It's okay if you do it, you're not really hurting anyone else, but your sin does affect more than just you. It always does. It has consequences. The ripple effect, the snowball effect is far reaching and holding on to your sin only makes the destructiveness to that sin grow and grow. And it's only when it's exposed and brought into light that Jesus can deal with it and then healing can begin. But that's difficult. And we, you know, we sing that song about my heart needs a surgeon. It's like surgery when God comes in and he cuts out the tumor of sin in our lives. That's not pleasant. It doesn't feel good when the surgery happens, but after a while, the healing comes and then we have life again. Our joy is restored. Our health is restored. We have hope. And so secret sins, they've gotta be exposed for healing to happen. And I want us to read Psalm 51. There, there are several Psalms that David wrote. Psalm wrote. David wrote Psalm 51 after all this had happened with with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, I want you to hear David's heart on this. Hear his plea. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, 
Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David wrote this Psalm and in these words, what we see here, we don't see a man filled with pride. We don't see a man with a calloused heart. We don't see a man who is blinded to his sin. We see a man who has been made aware of his sin against God. Did you hear his words? He says, have mercy on me. Oh God, I know my transgressions and my sins are before you. He's a broken man. He's broken over his sin. He's a humble man. He's no longer self-focused. He's a repentant man. He's crying out to the Lord who he sinned against. But he's also clinging to the promises. He's clinging to the reality of God's promise and his character. Because you see, even in the midst of all this, would you believe that God never stopped loving David? And in the midst of your sin, God never stopped loving you either. And the way I know that is because the Bible says in Romans chapter five, he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is how we know. That is true love. You want to know what true love, the definition of love is? That's it. It's the gospel. It's that your sin was so bad that Jesus had to die, but God's love was so great that while you were still a sinner, he died for you. So this morning, we ask the question, what do we do? When we're confronted with our sin, what do we do? We appeal to God on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of what Jesus has done, what he's already taken care of on the cross. And so if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, meaning you've just become blatantly aware of your sin and how it's keeping you from knowing God, God is saying, you need to repent. You need to confess your sin. And the Bible says, if you confess your sin to him, he is faithful and just. He will purify you from all unrighteousness. He will make you clean. Though your sins are like scarlet, he makes them as white as snow. That's the promise. 
For some of you this morning, that's what you need to do. Cry out to God, repent of your sin, ask Jesus to save you. And we're gonna give you that opportunity this morning. But if you're a Christian here today and you have made that profession of faith, you've, you've asked Jesus, you're, you're saved and he's changed your life. And he's revealed other sin, he's, he's revealed sin into your, that's in your life that, that you're harboring, you're holding on to, that you become blind to. You need to confess that as well because that's killing your intimacy with God. And so in a moment, as we respond to God's word, you respond in whatever way God calls you to. But we're gonna give you a moment to, to spend with God whatever he's revealed to you to confess to him and give to him. And just as David said, we're appealing on behalf of God's mercy and his righteousness because as great as our sin is, God's grace is far greater. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, your word is truth. And Lord, we know that it's not it's not fun and pleasant whenever you reveal sin to us. It hurts. But God, you don't show us our sin to condemn us so that we'll feel guilt and shame and walk in it. You show us our sin so that we'll come to you with it, so that we'll repent of that sin. We'll give it to you, we'll confess it to you. And Lord, your, your word tells us and shows us in the gospel that you will forgive. If we come to you, with a heart of repentance, you will forgive us. You will purify us. You will make us new. So Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, Lord, I ask that they cry out to you right now. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer this morning if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. My words are not saving words. What's gonna save you this morning is the condition of your heart. The words that you cry out from your heart to the Lord. So this morning, if you need Jesus to save you, you pray, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Lord, I know I can't save myself. Lord, I'm sorry. But Jesus, I believe that you are Lord. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross, taking my sin. Jesus, I believe you got up out of the grave so that I could have life. And Jesus, I ask you to save me. If you could, cried out this morning to Jesus to save you, Word of God says that he did. We praise God for that. And as we close our invitation, for believers here this morning, I just wanna give you a few moments, a few moments to sit and to talk to your Father in heaven, bringing to him whatever he's revealed to you now as we close. Would you just go to the Lord right where you sit?
Father, we praise you this morning. Praise you for the life change that's taking place here today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. It's the hope that we all need. We love you and we praise you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.